This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. And I'm Matthew. Hello, everybody. Uh, We're proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, a premier location for all your podcast music podcast needs. Screwed that one up. This is our 56th episode. Uh, If you had told me in July of 2019 that we'd be uh, this far in and planning for the future, I probably would have laughed at you pretty hard. Uh, But we are just getting started. We just recently released a spinoff podcast called Audio Judo Does Jazz which serves as an introduction to the huge ocean of music that is jazz. Hosted by your jazz spirit guide, Chris, we hope that you will check that out at our website, audiojudo.com, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts from. Please. Uh, This is a 16-part series, and depending on the response, who knows, we may do uh, season two next year if uh, Chris is up to it. Yeah. It's a lot of writing, but... We've also had uh, some interest from a lot of other people about doing a spinoff series about all different kinds of stuff. Right. We have so, uh, many more exciting things in the works. Who knows what the future holds? Uh, this week, we head to 1990 and the commercial breakthrough for the English band Depeche Mode and their album, Violator. I do not like that title. Just every time I say Violator, I'm like, Ugh. That was kind of the point. Violator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This was the band's seventh album, and uh, while they enjoyed significant success around the world with some of their other songs and records, uh, this is the album that made them more or less household names, Hmm. and the record that would eventually spur their induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, What would you say they actually were, or are, Kyle? Would you say they're a synth-pop band, or an electronic music band? I have been thinking about that for like two weeks. And is there a specific difference between those two things? Are they electronic new wave are they synth pop? Are I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know where they quite fit because every one of their albums is a little bit different enough that I don't think you can classify them in any one category. Yes. This album, I would say, falls right on that line between is it a new wave album or is it uh, like a, an electronic album? Hmm. And I think it's it. You could classify it as both. I don't think there's I don't think there's a clear answer to your question, really. I think, I, I think that you could you could classify it as both because there's a lot of heavy uh early electronic instrument influences here. Right. But there's also a lot of really heavy new wave influences here. So big time. I don't know. If I so if I was asked that question, I would answer the former. I believe that they're kind of a synth they're a synth pop band. I believe uh the way they structure songs, the instru- instrumentation that they use in those songs and focus on vocals and melodies 
kind of sets them apart from an electronic music band like, say, Daft Punk, for instance. Um, I would agree with that. They started off very much in the new wave style of the early 80s, but kind of charted their own path musically over the next four decades. Uh, and I guess we should take a, a little bit of a look about their history and see yeah. where they came from. So uh, Depeche Mode was formed in Basilton, England, uh, way back in 1980. The roots of the band can be traced back to 1977, uh, with the faces of the band playing in local high school bands around the Essex area. Vince Clark, Andy Fletcher, and Martin Gore uh, were playing in a slew of local bands at the time, uh, heavily influenced by The Cure and The Damned. Um, after hearing OMD, and for all the noobs, it's orchestral maneuvers in the dark. Uh, Clark was inspired to change the direction of the music he was writing and started focusing more on electronic sounds. And they proceeded to, like, buy all the synths they could in the area. <laughs> just, like, just go on a massive spree of just, like, we got a, you got a synthesizer? I'll take it. You got a keyboard? I'll take it. <laughs> Soon, uh, Clark and Fletcher recruited Martin Gore into the band as the third instrumentalist. And David uh, Gahan would join... The group in the late eight, uh, in late 1980 as the group's vocalist. After the other three saw him perform a version of David Bowie's Heroes. Um, at that time, the name of the band was the very pretentious Composition of Sound. <laughs> uh, before they had worked through the names like The Plan and No Romance in China and The French Look. Uh, when they picked their new name, Depeche Mode, Gore was asked why he picked it, and he explained that. It means hurried fashion or fashion dispatch, and I like the sound of that. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately for Gore, that's not exactly what that means. Uh, it actually means fashion news or fashion update. As long as it's not fascist news, I think we're okay. <laughs> I wonder uh, when he finally figured out what it actually means if he stopped liking it. Huh. They got to well, live with it now. Yeah, they're kind of stuck with it at this point. Oh, it means fashion news, not not fashion dispatch. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> Well, erase all the history. <laughs> Band's done. Uh, from there, they began playing local gigs anywhere they could, shopping their demo tape. Um, I think if you saw some of the same research I did, Kyle, you saw that they had a very interesting way of trying to get A&R people to listen to their demo tape. Hmm. Uh, instead of the customary way of doing it, which was to make a shit ton of tapes and send them to every record label and cross your fingers and hope for a response, they actually went door to door. They took their demo to a label and said they wanted to meet with someone who would listen to their tape. And when the rep would inevitably say, just leave it here, I'll see that it gets to the right person, Depeche Mode would say, it's our only copy, and leave, <laughs> and go somewhere else. <laughs> Be like, nope, we only got one copy. See ya. <laughs> uh, that is, that's a pretty good tactic, though. Right? Because that means if, you know, you might get somebody who's like, yeah, I'll listen to it. Okay, we're going to stay here while you listen to it. And then you get to go sit in their office while they listen to it and have that awkward you know, moment where they're actually listening to your music, but and they either, like, then they have to say to something it, about it. Or like, mm, that's yeah. a stinker. Oh, boy. According to the band, they were considering many offers when Daniel Miller, founder of Mute Records, approached them uh, about recording a single. Uh, they did, and it became a, uh, began a very successful relationship uh, that lasted until about 2012 when Mute was acquired by BMG. Has everybody been acquired by BMG? Everybody's been acquired by somebody. I think BMG owns half it's, the uh, music industry or more. It's the two biggest problems facing uh, pretty much all of uh, the arts right now is uh, everybody's amalgamating into one big clump and everybody's just rehashing all the stuff that's already been rehashed. Nobody's willing to take a chance to make anything new. That's a lot of hash. It's a lot of hash. Uh, 
They began a commercially successful period with the release of Just Can't Get Enough and their first record, Speak and Spell. Right after that, founding member Vince Clark decided he, the, he either was sick of touring or sick of the band in general. Or both. And decided to leave. And he uh, formed the also successful group Yaz with Alison Moyet. Um, as a result, Martin Gore became the primary songwriter. This could get a little rude, but I said commercially successful mm-hmm. because, as usual, our old friend Rolling Stone magazine mm-hmm. wrote off their music as, quote-unquote, PG fluff. Because, as we know, Rolling Stone is afraid of anything new and challenging. That is true. They love their dinosaurs. Uh, reviewer David Frick, who carved out a career for himself criticizing bands endlessly, and then goes on to host the Rush channel on Sirius Radio after Neil Peart died. Uh, I mean, hold on. Seriously, <laughs> in the span of two minutes, this supposed treasure chest of musical knowledge referred to a live album of Rush's by the wrong name and repeatedly mispronounced Neil Peart's name. So, Mr. Frick, I give you very little credence to begin with. So, anyway, he went on to say uh, this about Depeche Mode. They are a group of fresh-faced suburban lads from Britain. They have neither the ambition of orchestral maneuvers in the dark nor the overt commercial allure of the human league. They simply drift aimlessly between the two, occasionally hitting a disco bullseye with chirpy dance tracks like Dreaming of Me and Just Can't Get Enough. Too often, the synthesizers lock into dead-end grooves, and the group's boyish caroling is anonymous at best. Sorry, uh, Mr. Frick. Who is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame now and who isn't? Yeah. Uh, it pisses me off every single time I listen to these pretentious boobs who condescend to the consumer as if they know better about what makes good music and what doesn't. So, <laughs> anyway, that p- sorry about that. That's okay. I just that's get a good, that's a good off rant. about that shit all the time. It really um it, it makes me question whether or not they are actually doing a good job reviewing. When you look at how so many of the pe- think the people that are held in high regard as being an oh this person is the music reviewer. These people are the the highest tier of music reviewers. How many of them miss amazing bands when they're new and then later on flip-flop and turn around like actually i guess they're pretty good oh yeah and it's like so you didn't see it in them then but you do in retrospect yeah which is you know easy to do exactly oh oh i address that later oh good uh so right after uh that record uh they also added another member of the group alan wilder uh and over the next several years uh they would become very popular in europe and to some degree in the states Mm -hmm. although that popularity was in certain pockets, uh, hits like People Are People, Master and Servant, and Blasphemous, blasphemous Rumors. I can never say blasphemous. blasphemous. Blasphemous Rumors would continue to sell records and put asses in seats. Uh, when their 1987 album Music for the Masses was released, they were poised for success on an international stage. That album, driven by hits like Strange Love and Behind the Wheel, cemented their position as the preeminent electronic band. As proof of this international appeal, they became one of the first bands to play in communist-controlled East Germany Hmm. and also sell 60,000 seats at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, the most that had been done in eight years up to that point. Wow. So there's appeal there. Yeah. So it was David Hasselhoff and then Depeche Mode. That's pretty impressive. Those two artists back-to-back. Yeah. First Depeche Mode, then David Hasselhoff. It's a great double ticket. That is a great double ticket. This is really at the high point of the Baywatch phenomenon. (laughs) Uh, But this album, Violator, would be the record that fulfilled all their dreams and is uh, usually the case, almost destroyed them all, 
individually and as a band. Released in March of 1990, it would become their biggest hit. Kyle, what was your uh, familiarity with this band? So uh, I know Depeche Mode uh, as a sort of lo-fi sound where I can't really make out any of the lyrics Mm -hmm. coming from under the crack in my sister's bedroom door. (laughs) Uh, Especially this album, for some reason. She listened to this album a lot. I feel like that's happened two or three times so far. So my sister was very much, and you got to remember, this was not in the late 80s, early 90s. This would have been 2003, 2004-ish. Okay, okay. Uh, She was very much into, you know, Depeche Mode, uh, a lot of the new wave bands, a lot of uh, sort of the 80s electronic music, a lot of Nine Inch Nails, uh, you know, which is a little later than this, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, Not too much. Not too much. Pretty Hate Machine uh, was out maybe a year or two after this. Yeah, I guess that's true. But uh, a, a lot of that type of music. And so a lot of my... Outside of just hearing, you know, the popular hits on the radio, this is how I would recognize those songs. And she really would listen to, like, she would put on Violator on, you know, CD and just put it on repeat. And so you would hear it like five or six times in a night over and over and over again. And I would begin to be able to recognize the melodies and things. Didn't have any clue what the fucking lyrics were because all I could (laughs) hear was... (laughs) But... Sounds, it was certainly something. Sounds exactly the same. Right? It sounds exactly the same. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's probably where I, I picked up on it first. All right. As far as like uh, Depeche Mode themselves go, obviously I've heard a lot of their hits. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know whether I would consider myself. They're a good band. They're not somebody that I've ever really uh, spent time seeking out, though. That's not, That's fair. So my relationship with them is complicated. Uh, as I mentioned before on this show, uh, I went to a private uh, Catholic all-boys high school. It was not any ritzy part of town. Originally, the school was located in Detroit proper, right across from the city airport. That was the airport that was primarily used for cargo and stuff like that. Um, in about 1980, they did a foundational check on that building, and it was falling apart from all the vibrations of almost 60 years of playing planes flying over the school. So they began a two-year search for a new building, and they settled on a more suburban location that happened to be about three blocks from my house. Oh, I had wanted to go there anyway, but this sealed the deal. Uh, This was a normal blue-collar, slightly white-collar suburb, one-story brick ranches with backyards. However, a lot of the students did not come from that neighborhood uh, because tuition was pricey, so a lot of the guys were from the wealthier parts of town. For some reason, the wealthier kids seemed to gravitate more to this type of music. Mm. Uh, While we in the middle-class region were still hung up on guitar bands and smoking weed and drinking Bud Light, uh, these more affluent areas were more about synth music or alternative at the time, cocaine and vodka. (laughs) Uh, I had friends who really dug this music, and I couldn't get into it for a long time. So my exposure until like senior year were movies that continued to further the stereotype that wealthier kids listened to it, and it wasn't for me. Movies like Less Than Zero and Pretty in Pink, that Mm. kind of stuff. So I kind of steered clear of it. Uh, But then the band I was in started playing dances in more affluent areas, and it became incumbent upon me to learn it. So I started listening to Depeche Mode, Sisters of Mercy, Susie and the Banshees, New Order, OMD, stuff like that. This album was released about two months shy of my graduation. Uh, I was getting my first real job out of high school, and was going to be working the swing shift, so four to midnight. So I really wanted to have, quote, nighttime music. You know, there's a certain type of music that lends itself well to being played at night, and this electronic stuff kind of fit the bill. It was 
a little dark, but sounded clean. It was a little provocative and haunting. The stuff you want to listen to with the windows down and 80 degrees kind of sweltery Midwest nights. Uh, I bought this record because it was the only band I really knew of that sounded like that at that time. And I played the shit out of it for that first summer. <laughs> so that's my relationship to it. So I do have a lot of familiarity with it. Uh, you have the vitals for... Uh... I got some vitals for uh, Depeche Mode, if you want yeah? those first. Uh, sure. They've had a total of 54 songs in the UK singles charts. That's a lot. That is a lot. Uh, they've had 17 top 10 albums on the UK charts. Total, they've sold over 100 million records worldwide, which is a very significant number. Wowzers. Uh, number 98 on VH1's 100 Greatest Artists of All Time. Pretty good. Just squeaked in, huh? Just squeaked in. Uh, <laughs> December 2016, Billboard named Depeche Mode the 10th greatest of all time. This is so confusing to me. The way they phrased this drive me, drives me nuts. It is the 10th greatest of all time top dance club artists what yeah right (laughs) 10th greatest of all time top dance club artists okay it's a weird phrasing Uh, and it's hard to read yeah it's not good but they are that uh and they were also like you said nominated for the rock and roll hall of fame uh in 2017 and 2018 and finally got in in 2020 As far as this album goes, yeah, uh, like you said, uh, it's their seventh studio album. Uh, reached number two on the UK album charts. Uh, it was beaten out by "I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got" by Sinead O'Connor. Oof, right? Uh, peaked at number seven on the US Billboard Top Ten. Uh, it went gold in the UK with a hundred thousand albums sold. Uh, three times platinum in the US, which is three million albums sold. Two times platinum in Canada, uh, and gold and silver in several other countries. Uh, total worldwide sales of this album are seven point five million. Wow. Which is uh, pretty, pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. Um, talking about some of the other people involved in the production of this album. Yeah. The producer, he goes by the name Flood. Flood. Uh, his real name is Mark Ellis. Uh, but he's worked with uh, a bunch of people, including New Order, U2, Nine Inch Nails, Gary Newman, King, Ministry, The Charlatans, 30 Seconds to Mars, Erasure, Nick Cave, and The Bad Seeds, Aha, Orbital, Seeger Ross, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, The Killers, White Lies, Brian Eno. Literally a who's who of like... That late 80s, early 90s sound. Very much so. One of the the main, the lead mixer, I guess we would call him, is uh, Francois Kevorkian. Mm-hmm. Not not related to the the death not, guy. Not related to Jack. As far as I can tell, not related to Jack Kevorkian and the, his death mobile. No. Uh, <laughs> Francois Kevorkian did all the, the lead mixing except for um, Enjoy the Silence on this album. Uh, he's a, a famous DJ and a record producer. He usually goes by the name, uh, his stage name, I guess I should say, is Francois K. Francois K. Francois K. Daniel Miller mixed the song Enjoy the Silence. Uh, he's the founder of Mute Records, who you spoke about a little bit before. Mm-hmm. There are a, a, a laundry list of other engineers and mixers on this album. Lots of engineers, and yes. I couldn't really find a lot of information on most of them. So sorry to them. I hope that you 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 did a great job working out of you the did. you know the studio in Denmark and the studio in Milan. Yeah, I no. assume they were probably like you said because this was recorded in four different studios. Yeah, my assumption is that these people were probably local engineers in all of those places, like the the person who handled the tape or the person who handled you know like an A two position or whatever it's called in a recording studio. Lots of hands on it. Lots of hands on it. Yeah, some interesting facts I found about this album. Yeah. The original vinyl editions have a shorter version of Personal Jesus on them, which we'll get to in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the original 1990 UK release, there was a promotional sampler, uh, a 12-inch single, and a promotional box. The box was 12 inches by 12 inches, uh, which is a good-sized box. 
The vinyl uh, size box. Contained yeah. a vinyl, a cassette, and a CD pressing all in the same box. Wow. It's very collectible, apparently very rare as well. I want one of those. Right? Um, also, just to sort of lend credence to this, this album was very well produced. Mm-hmm. It sounds really good. For the UK release, they released it on two short-lived formats. One was called DCC, which is Digital Compact Cassette, which is a really cool format. And it makes me very, very sad that it never took off. Right. Because it would have meant really high-quality music in a very familiar form factor. Mm. Um, <laughs> there's a great video out there. If you search for DCC on YouTube, I can't remember the channel's name. Uh, Techmone. That's the name of the channel. The Techmone channel on YouTube. It's a guy who does a whole bunch of retro tech videos. He covers the whole history of DCC, including there's a company in somewhere in Europe, I believe, that is still making. They have a they have the DCC Museum, and they are still releasing um, uh, new music on DCCs, which is cool. It was also released on mini disc, which was not a format that a lot of commercial music was released on in. Europe and uh, the United States. I still have some mini discs. It was very, very popular in uh, Japan. There's also a few uncredited instrumental tracks uh, called Interludes on this album. Uh, One between Enjoy the Silence and Policy of Truth. It's called Interlude Number 2-Crucified. Crucified, yeah. Uh, The second interlude on the album is the track between Blue Dress and Clean. That's called Interlude Number 3. Interlude Number 1, funnily enough, which is subtitled Mission Impossible is on uh, Music for the Masses, which is their previous album. And uh, interlude number four is on Songs of Faith and Devotion, which is a later album. It kind of bookends yeah. this record that Music for the Masses was right before Songs of Faith and Devotion, right yeah. after. So yeah, it was commercially commercially very successful. Yeah. Uh, but as usual, the critics were not impressed. Mm. The every-time cynic Robert Christigau gave it a C-, complaining that the band was trying to make inroads on the rap market by rhyming drug and thug. And I'm like, what? These reviewers are human trash. I'm telling you, the most effective thing you can say in a review, as you call it, is to complain about the rhyming scheme. (laughs) I can think of a thousand examples on records that this guy cherishes that are worse than that. Also, as usual, Rolling Stone can't decide what they want to do until someone tells them what to do. The original review states, Gahan sounds slimy and self-involved. And in their attempt to make listeners dance, Depeche Mode revert to morose pop psychology, then never tell you how come they're so sad. And then, just 13 short years later, after the masses (laughs) has decided with their money that this album was worth listening to, they reverse course and place this at number 342 on their top 500 albums of all time, now saying Violator is the crowning glory of the boys' black leather period. And not to be outdone in the course of revisionist history, 17 years after that, this album had moved up the list to number 167. Because as I said before, nobody gives a shit about your list, Rolling Stone. If the album is great, people are going to buy it, and you'll be late to the party telling everyone that you knew it all along. Slimy and self-indulgent. Jesus Christ. That sounds like a good uh, a good music duo. He just needs to just... I'm telling you this is a bad record. Okay, well, it sold 8 million copies. Oh, I like it now. It's, yeah, it's wonderful. I, I love every second of it. Stupid. Well, yes. So just to prove the fact that this was even a big record when it was released, have you heard the uh, Warehouse Records story? No. Oh, this is a good one. So on March 20th, the day after this record was released, uh, the band was uh, at Warehouse Records in Los Angeles. They were supposed to do a signing, so people could come in, buy the album, and they were going to sign it. 
When they got there and started the event, which was expected to only draw a few thousand fans, uh, 20,000 plus people showed up. That's it? Uh, the store capacity was only 150 people. Uh, How many showed up? 20,000. <laughs> the streets were packed. Because of that, the band was evacuated. They were taken out back, put into a car, and driven away as quickly as possible. <laughs> uh, but people in the store, it was so crammed with people, there were actually injuries from people being slammed up against the glass. After the band members were evacuated, there was almost a riot requiring the assistance of 100 Los Angeles police officers outfitted in riot gear, as reported by the LA Times. Music journalist Ted Miko described the chaos in the August 18th issue of Melody Maker, quote, Maudettes were spread over six square blocks and literally ground it literally ground the entire city to a standstill. Nothing like this had happened in L.A. for years, even when U2 shot their video for Where the Streets Have No Name on a downtown rooftop. Oh, yeah. Depeche Mode bigger than Jesus? Question mark? Uh, <laughs> not quite, but they give Bono a run for his money and are taken as seriously and followed as fanatically here as The Cure or New Order are in Britain. I believe that. Modets, huh? Right, Modets. Mod- is it Modets or Modets? I don't know, it's Depeche Mode, so I'm guessing it's Modets. Oh, Modets. Interesting. I was thinking is uh, uh, from more of a, like, the mods and the rockers. Oh, I was thinking Modets because they're fans of that Depeche Mode. That makes more sense now that you say that. You're probably right. I'm going to say I'm right and say Modets. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I've never heard that term before. So. What's Randy doing? Is he, like, making a sketch of us over there? He's doing, like, a court mm-hmm, court drawing? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. It looks just like me. That's just a penis. <laughs> It looks just like me. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, cover art? Cover art. It's a very interesting. <laughs> the cover art is just a huge penis that looks kind of like Matthew. <laughs> it's uh, very simple and striking. It is. Uh, it's, very, it's, a, it's a penis that looks very simple and striking. Yeah, you know. It's a, oh, I can't even go on. It's a black let's, background. Hang on, hang on. Let's, <laughs> let's make this easy for Randy. Let's make this easy for Randy. We got to cut it right there and start over from the beginning of this, because otherwise he's going to have to piece it together like, it's a not penis that looks like Randy. How about the cover art? Yeah, it's uh, super simple, but I love it. Yeah, black background with a single red rose pinned to a board with the word violator in small script. Mm -hmm. Cover art was done by longtime associate Anton Corbin. Uh, This guy has worked with a huge list of artists over the years and has primarily been the artist for two bands, Mm -hmm. U2 and Depeche Mode. Uh, That's a pretty good resume right there. Just leave it at those two. Uh, He has said that they are completely different bands to work with, though. U2 wants their hands on everything, input on everything, while Depeche Mode pretty much gives him free reign to do what he wants. And uh, he's like, all right, so I did this. And they loved it. You have more? Yeah. I I, I don't really. The only thing that is, is, it's a sort of mystery to me. So... I could not find any information. It says that the design was by Anton Corbin and Area. Yeah, I couldn't find anything by Area. What the fuck is Area? I don't know. It's it's this total mystery because I, I tried searching for hours to figure out what Area is. Is it a, a design studio? Is it a person? Because there's a person on this named Flood. Maybe there's a person named Area. I don't. I can't find any person on this or any information on this, whether it's a person or a design studio. I couldn't find anything either. If you know the answer to this, get in touch with us, please. I'm cur- I really am curious to know if this was a design studio or it's like an in joke or, or what the fuck is this? Oh yeah, you're all of our UK listeners. Please. You guys should have your hand in, in you, this. You, you should might know. know. And one of the other things that was crazy was I was sure um, there's a fantastic resource for everything Depeche Mode at the Depeche Mode wiki. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't have the actual website address, but if you search for Depeche Mode Wiki, you'll find it. And I was like, they'll know. They have information about everything. Yeah, no, there was nothing there about it. It just doesn't, area is a mystery. So who knows? Nobody, apparently. Apparently nobody. Yeah, hit us up on Twitter if you yes. know. Yeah, it's, yes. it's audio, uh, at Audio Judo on Twitter. Yes. Uh, uh, hit us up there, or if you don't have Twitter, you can do it on uh, Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash audio. Who doesn't have, oh. A lot of people don't have Twitter. And if you don't have either of those, email us, info at audiojudo.com. Nice. We'll repeat all those at the end of the show, so you don't have to rewind it and write those down. But uh, before we do the track by track, hmm. uh, let's take a short break. Sounds like a plan. I fucking love this record as a music podcast hosted by me, the Derek Care of You. Every week, a guest and I discuss a record that we both fucking love. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts or from our website, lovethisrecord.com. Hey, we're ready to do a track by track? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Matthew, do you see the world in my eyes? I do. I do. Oh, good. I love that this song starts right away. Right? You know, so many times when I'm listening to music bands uh, try to start their records with like ominous beginnings with ethereal sounds or slow builds, heavy pads of strings or whatever, like they're trying to establish mood. This album begins none with of none of that. And the mood is built all on its own within the song. This song was the fourth single from the record. Was pretty successful. Yeah. Uh, reached the top 10 in four European countries, number 17 in the UK, number 52 in the States. Uh, it was recorded both in Denmark and in Italy and reflected how this album was going to be constructed. Uh, on their previous records, their method of working was uh, that they would have very extensive pre-production meetings where they would decide how the next record was going to sound, uh, and then they would go do that. This time they felt, as Gore explained, it was a new decade and maybe it was time for a new way of working. So they kind of went their own ways after the last tour and worked on stuff separately, brought material to the studio and worked them out together. Uh, Gore was definitely, still is, the main songwriter, but it was more of a collaborative effort uh, than in uh, the previous records. Um, Because there aren't a lot of organic instruments being played, it's hard to discern who did what on any given song other yeah. than drum programming, keys, and the occasional guitar. Uh, but one of the things that makes this kind of music so appealing, to me anyway, was how clean and precise it sounded. Uh, a lot could be said for the return of lo-fi gra- garage-sounding music later on in the 90s. But this clean, noise-free sound was very interesting and different, and I've always found that really intriguing. Yeah. Um, lyrically, it's an exploration of the most important sex organ in the body. <laughs> the brain. The mm. biggest sex organ in the body, too. Uh, it. Well, in most people. Well, not everybody's got it. Look at the big brain on Brad. <laughs> uh, it, like a lot of songs on this record and their catalog overall, deals with sex and very provocative ideas. Mm-hmm. This being that if it feels good, do it. Less about reason and whether or not you should do it but just give in to the experience sounds like this
going to say something? I was going to say Billboard described this song as Gahan playing horndog travel agent, <laughs> inviting a lover to follow him someplace where pleasure reigns supreme and everything else ceases to exist. I think that's the perfect horndog travel horn dog agent. Travel agent. I'm, I'm so glad you wrote that down because I saw it and I'm like, <laughs> Kyle's got to write this down. I'm not going to write I, this one down. I love that little wow, 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 wow noise. On top of that, <laughs> I totally agree with you, but for a slightly different reason. Yeah. This song, like you said, it just starts and it immediately lets you know, oh, this is a fucking electronic album. Yeah, it is. And on top of that, any album that starts with the fuck song <laughs> is a great album. Yeah, just, you just, it's right there. It starts right out. It's just like, hey, guess what? Worldwide fuck song. Boom. Worldwide. Not, I've been all around the world. Not until Pitbull several years later has anybody done a worldwide fuck song. Is this song both international and worldwide? It might be worldwide and international, yes. Oh, that's interesting. Has Pitbull remixed this song? That's the next question. Pretty much everybody has. I mean, like at one point or another. Uh, so one of my favorite things about this record are the synth voices that they use yeah. throughout. So uh, I don't know that they are specifically unique, but they are used really well. So nowadays, all those sounds and a million more are available at your fingertips. But this was at a time when there were still a lot of trial and error going on to get the right sound. And it's so cool that, like, just how many different voicing sounds they use throughout for texture, for melody. It's yeah. really cool. And I definitely think that goes back to the sort of, there's a lot of layering that happens in these songs. They used a lot of the, you know, like the, the tape effect tricks where they chord stuff and play it backwards and forwards and, and loop things. Well, the mixing engineers are like the fifth, musician yes, absolutely. On, these, on is, these songs. It is a superb mix. And the fact that it doesn't get more credit for that is is mind-boggling. Bunch of me. crap. Right? So in 2006, they redid this album. They, re, they re-engineered re, this album. Remastered or re-engineered? They remastered this okay. album. And they did it on... Uh, so in Europe, it's on SACD and DVD uh, and a long play album. Mm-hmm. And in the United States, it's on CD and DVD and LP. But apparently, it's in 5.1 surround sound on Ooh. the DVD. It is apparently awesome. And I've got a couple other notes that will come back to that I later on. I need to check on. that out. 5.1 uh, surround sound. I got to find that version and listen to it because that sounds really cool to me, especially yeah. with a lot of the effects and stuff, being able to actually be in positional audio around you. Right. That there's, sounds really there's cool. There's so much balancing that's going on that because it's electronic, yeah. it's easier to manipulate, allegedly. I mean, there's a lot of artistry going on. I think we take for granted that it's, oh, it's all digital, yeah. so it's super easy to do, but it isn't. One last note on this particular song. There's a fantastic cover of this song by The Cure, hmm. released in 1998. I think that is so cool. So a band that Depeche Mode has cited as significant influences in their career turned around and covered a song of theirs for a tribute album. I don't know if there's another instance of that happening. That is really cool. So you're, yeah, I influenced you, but I'm going to take one of your really popular songs and I'm going to cover it for your tribute record. That's pretty awesome stuff. That's it. There's, there's probably not a lot of higher tributes than that, but that's, it's not the sweetest perfection. It did not achieve the sweetest perfection. <laughs> not even close. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful tapestry of, this intermingling of do they are they talking about sex or are they talking about drugs? Oh, I thought but the same thing. Or both? I mean, it's such a cool like obviously a lot of the songs from a lot of different bands in in every era, rock, new wave, whatever, grunge, whatever, 
are interminglings of sex and drugs. This one is so fun because it plays off of every line could mean both. It could mean both. So I used to have mixed feelings about this song because some of the vibrato that Gahan uses is so different. It mm-hmm. grows on you after a while, but it's weird. Uh, one of the things that I learned while doing this research that surprised me quite a bit uh, was that Martin Gore writes all the songs, including all the lyrics. And that hmm. bit of knowledge changed change things for me. And I guess we should talk a little bit about David Gahan. Okay. Uh, he was the lead singer of the band, mm-hmm. and he has a long-standing history, like a lot of his rock and roll colleagues, of drug abuse. Uh, his drug of choice was heroin, and he has survived four near deaths, earning him the nickname The Cat. <laughs> uh, he even had a drug-induced heart attack on stage at a show in New Orleans. Good Lord. Survived a suicide attempt when he slid his wrists, and also OD'd on a speedball. Um, as of uh, today, he's 20 years sober, which is fantastic for him. I bring this, Yeah, good for him. I bring this up because it would be easy to believe, listening to the lyrics of the band, that somehow those experiences would get into the lyrics. Uh, as we saw with Scott Whelan from STP, when he talked about that on the Purple episode, uh, it creeps in. And in yeah. his case, it becomes the only thing you are capable of writing about. So when I read these lyrics again when prepping for this, I was like, yep, makes sense. And then you realize it isn't him at all that's writing these lyrics, and you have to think about it all over again. Yeah. So what is he talking about? He refers to the sweetest injection, the slightest infection. The fear that the spell may be broken when I need a drug in me, and it brings out the thug in me, feel something tugging me. So my feelings are that gore intertwined, like you said, sex and drugs. But this song is more about a lover than it is about drugs. Mm. Uh, Lines like, things you'd expect to be having effect on me pass undetectedly, but everyone knows what has got to me. Like, I feel that refers more effectively to a person than an obtuse reference to drugs. Uh, I think it is extremely effective writing because it could realistically be about both of those things or either of those things at the same time. This is another great example of excellent, excellent drum programming. Yes. The beginning of the song has this slowly building drum part that uses a sound that mimics brushes on a drum. I don't know how you do that in programming, <laughs> but it is super well done. Like right? It sounds so... It sounds very analog. It sounds very yeah. organic. It doesn't this sound is, like a digital drum program. This is another one of those albums that we come across every once in a while, where, like you said earlier, a lot of this is programming. A lot of it is, you know, because it's early digital, it was using big pieces of equipment for, you know, effects and things. And apparently they took really good notes on it. But I would love to see somebody break it down and say, okay, how do you, how did they actually do this? Uh, to throw back to earlier when I was saying, you know, in 2006, they remastered all of this. Yeah. The engineer on that project was Kevin Paul, uh, and he told Sound on Sound Magazine, quote, Sweetest Perfection was completely crazy. There's lots of tape loops, lots of phasing, all sorts of crazy sounds going on. That was really hard to emulate, and I had to put my personal spin 
uh, excuse me, I had to put my personal spin on it just to get it to work. He had notes and things about the way that they did some things, but because it was all, you know, oh, let's turn this up a little bit and let's tweak this sound and let's make the reverb a little bit more and let's do this and this and this because it was all done in the moment. And then they would spit out a tape and they're like, that's the master. Right. He didn't really have an exact way to replicate all of these sounds. So he had to do it all by ear. Oof. And he had to sit there and say, okay, that sounds like they used this type of reverb. Reverb. Let's try it. Wow. And then he'd try it and be like, no, that's not right. And then he'd be like, mm, it sounds like right here, the reverb kicks in. And then right here, it kicks out. And here it kicks in. And here it kicks out. Let's try that. Nah, it didn't work. What a pain in the ass. Right? I, I can just imagine the tedious hours spent with a good set of headphones on probably sitting there and and is it this no is it this no is it this uh, maybe is it this no it, it's nuts to me right and, people need to give uh people need to give their engineers more credit like yes. randy for instance over there right give him some credit he's throwing up the horns right now right rock and roll horns okay right. he's like my own personal jesus almost Ooh. well hang oh, on wait. i got one more thing I oh okay say. sorry damn, damn it so that would have been perfect oh but I gotta Son of a bitch. I got to talk about the end of this song. Oh, please do. The the bonkers ending to this song that like gets creepy and weird and kind of off the wall. Mm-hmm. Alan Wilder describes how the outro came to be in a, in a Q&A session on Shunt, uh, the official Recoil website. I'm sorry, what was that? Shunt. Copy that. Shunt. Shunt. Uh, quote, the weird stuff at the end came together during the mixing stage with Francois Kevorkian. Uh, it's the kind of thing you resort to when you haven't really got an ending. Oh, so they just kind of like... <laughs> They just kind of did some weird shit at the end, and they're like, and end. And just dismounted. Dismount? Dismount! Now! Now can Randy be my personal Jesus? Randy can be your personal Jesus. Sweet. So, while I don't think that this is the best song on the record, it is the most iconic for Depeche Mode, as it is for the very first time in their careers, placed the guitar as the primary instrument in the song. Uh, That blues bass riff was so unlike anything they had done to that point. That it even caught the ear and attention of Van Halen frontman at the time, Sammy Hagar, mm. who called it a badass song and a cool lyric. It also impressed fellow countryman Def Leppard, who thought it was cool and gave them a new appreciation for the band. <laughs> uh, even Robert Smith from The Cure will call this one of his very favorite songs of the 80s. We will forgive the fact that the album was released in the 90s, but the single was released a full nine months before the record was <laughs> in August of 1989. Uh, it is well, powerful. Well, go ahead. I was going to say, it's also definitely influenced by the 80s because it was made in the 80s. It was influenced by everything that came before it. So unless they recorded it and finished it between January 1st, 1990, and when it was released in what, March? Yeah, but the so, this song was released in August of 89. Exactly. Right. So, so very 80s influenced. Right before I started my senior in high school. Shut up, both of you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, It it is powerful and memorable. Uh, It was the very first song I heard off this record. Don't even. Don't. Don't. 1989? Was the start of my senior year in high school. five years old. (laughs) (laughs) I can show that on one hand. Uh, Not the one that's missing a finger, but the other one is fine. (laughs) Uh, It was the first song I heard off this record, and it was the lead single. Mm -hmm. Got to number 28 in the States, their first top 40 single in the States since People Are People. Uh, In Germany, the single charted for 23 weeks. Whoa! And it was 
Germany. Germany loves Depeche Mode. Germany loves Depeche Mode. <laughs> it was number 368 on Rolling Stone's list of top five, 500 songs of all time. Huh. Hopefully, we'll get some new German fans from this. That'd be great. So, uh, Guten Tag, German fans. Guten Tag. Martin Gore was inspired to write the song after reading Priscilla Presley's autobiography, Elvis and Me, where she refers to Elvis as her own personal Jesus. Gore confirms this in an interview where he said, It's a song about being a Jesus for somebody else. Someone to give you hope and care. It's about how Elvis was her man and her mentor, how often that happens in love relationships, how everyone's heart is like a god in some way. We play these godlike parts for people, but no one is perfect. And that's not a very balanced view of someone, is it? <laughs> uh, Gahan gives this song subversive weight with his vocal performance like this. Further on in the song, there's this very breathy part that acts as a drum part. Mm -hmm. It's so great. One of the reasons why this song is so effective. Uh, it was original and unique, and then coupled with that slide guitar work that punctuates the song, it's no wonder that it was as big as it was. Uh, the most effective line in the song, though, is the reach out, touch faith. Oh, yeah. Uh, I love in the beginning where there's that sort of almost like a glass harmonica noise that opens the song and then just out of nowhere, reach out and touch faith. And I it's just love this that. loud, booming, perfect intro to this song. <laughs> so I saw on a lot of message boards, uh, people suggest that the line is a twisting of the line, reach out and touch someone. Yes. Used by AT&T for many years in their advertising. Yeah. Uh, because the, f the song itself uses the phone so prominently in the lyrics. Yes. It's hard to tell, though. Because this is a profoundly British band. Yes. Uh, my thoughts are that they wouldn't reference a U.S. marketing campaign for what, at the time, was a predominantly European fan base. Yeah. I did some research to see if maybe other companies that AT&T was associated with yeah. had used that same tagline worldwide. They did not, as far as I can tell. Um, but AT&T did use it from 1971 until the late 80s. Yeah. Somewhere. Um to promote long distance phone, long service, distance phone, yeah, which is a weird thing for somebody in 2021 to talk about. That there was a time where they had to advertise long distance phones. Well, service. sometimes when you were like, say, up camping with your mom, but your dad couldn't take as many weeks off of work, so you had to call him at the house. You'd have to walk from the campsite to the payphone yeah. just to call your dad and say, "Hey, what's going on?" We had to use these like attached phones yeah weird. i didn't have one in my pocket at the time that would have been awkward uh, a full-size payphone a full-size payphone in my my uh shorts people coming up and trying to slip quarters into your slot to use it <laughs> i can't tell you how many times you heard that what happened. I said. <laughs> uh, there are a couple of other uh really great covers of this song oh as well. yes there are uh one by marilyn manson and another by the late great johnny cash that falls in line with his version of Hurt by Nine Inch Nails, 
similarly great and similarly uncomfortable yes all at the same time one other thing about this song that yeah. i found that uh it sort of alludes to the idea of a phone-in confessional yes uh and i was curious to know if that was a real thing in the the 80s or 70s i could not find any direct reference to it you mean like a like some sort of catholic thing where i call yeah, the priest at home sort of, and be like, or maybe like an, i figured it would probably be more of a give me a quick quick absolution while i got you on collect I figured it would actually be more of a weird evangelical U.S. thing, hmm. um, you know, where they, you know, that was one of the reasons to break away from the Catholic Church was we'll do phone and confessions. Do uh, the evangelicals do confessionals? I, I could not absolution. Find, I don't know. I don't think and they do. I could not find any information on whether that was real or not. However, there is a uh, a very recent article from uh, April 2020 in the uh, citing by the Catholic Church. Uh, citing that you cannot do phone-in confessionals, oh. specifically because the priest must be physically present. What about Zoom? You cannot do Zoom. What? He's right there in front so of me. Here's where it gets. It, oh man, this article goes into great detail about how a priest could say, "Stand outside of a hospital with a megaphone and use that to broadcast his voice because he is physically present." That's okay. At the site. That is okay. But he could not. But I thought confession was private. He could not call the hospital. Yeah, it's and he can give absolution that way too. Uh, uh, Father Bill, this is Matthew again. Oh my God! Right? How many times did you do that? It is a very I'm sorry. Um, the Sears catalog just showed up. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't help it. Stop doing that. She's wearing a pink bra. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> but uh, it was very interesting to me to the, how detailed they had to get. And like, can you use this exact scenario? No, you cannot. But this scenario, you can. So this one, megaphone outside of a hospital, A-OK. Yes. But um, Zoom call in the privacy of my own home, not okay. not OK. And specifically, the reason is, like I said, the priest must be physically present with the person. Now- That's some horse shit. There's a little bit of leeway there because- what they're saying is, you know, obviously in the time of COVID, like we are now, let's say someone was in a hospital room dying. It would be very dangerous for the priest to go into that hospital room. So but they can stand outside the door and take a person's confession and give them the last rites. Sounds some bullshit relativism here. Right? Like, oh, well, it's COVID. We, ha we can change the rules. Well, so apparently this is clarification from previous things because uh, this article, which you went is- deep. Uh, I did. I do like uh, I do like that. This is from uh, canonlawmadeeasy.com. Oh, my God. There's really... 2020 slash 04 slash 30 slash confession over I'm phone. I'm familiar with canon law. Is the article. But they go very deep, and they talk about how previously... Giggity. The church had talked about how, you know, can you take confession over the internet? Can you take confession over the phone? Can you take confession over radio? Can you, you know, let's say there's sailors at sea who are dying, and they can only confess to a, a priest over a radio. Does that count or not? It should. It does not. It doesn't count? It doesn't count because the priest isn't there. Now, in theory, this is my own speculation. So does that... Uh, so whatever whatever it takes to ordain a priest, right? Yeah. You could, in theory, ordain a priest over the phone because I don't believe that canon says that that has to be done physically in it person. It absolutely has to be done in person. It does? Because, okay, they, so have, because they have to uh, anoint oils on oh, okay. them. So, they so can't you just, can't. You can't just do that. So, so a, wait a second. So I know we're off topic topic but so what about last rites can't be done over can't the phone. be done over the can't phone can't be done over the phone according to this article that is can't some be done that is phone. some first rate catholic bullshit coming from a guy who grew up seriously catholic 
That is now, some first-rate bullshit. Again, but I've been saying the, that for years. Again, they this, don't know what the fuck they're doing. This is, of course, uh, one article on uh, canonlawmadeeasy.com. If I offend any Obviously Catholics, I'm not source. sorry. I'm not sorry at all. If I recall correctly, uh, it is definitive sources. It you is, just crossed uh, yourself with your left hand, buddy. I saw that. Uh, definitive <laughs> sources, I believe, is number one is the Bible, number two is the Pope, and number three is uh, canonlawmadeeasy.com. Ah. Uh, if I recall correctly. Right. And number, <laughs> number four is whatever the hell that guy in the end of the street makes up. Exactly. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Yes. So, uh, oh, very interesting, God. though. I dove deep into a hole there. Whoo. A Catholic hole. I love Whoa. I like that. I had I li- no protection. I actually like that. Uh, I like that jaunt. That was nice. I figured you would like that, and that's why I left it in my notes. Right. It almost gives you a uh, halo. Ooh, it does. Right after Jesus, there's an allusion to an angel. <laughs> so, so Depeche Mode uh, has always had this quality for me. Whether you call it spooky or haunting or provocative, mm-hmm. like I've said a few times, their music evokes a certain darkness. Not evil, but a little dirty. Yeah, a little on the fringes, darkened clubs, darkened corners. So a few months after this record came out, I started college, but came, but came home for the weekend, and one of my high school friends had called and said that a bunch of people had bought one of the shuttered elementary schools in our neighborhood, just a couple miles from my house. Uh, he said they were going to turn the school into a giant haunted house for Halloween weekend, which just happened to be that weekend. Uh, they were looking for quote unquote actors. <laughs> Just people to dress up, put on makeup, and scare the hell out of people. They weren't paying, but it sounded like something fun to do. So he and I went and volunteered. Uh, the company was supplying all the makeup and costumes, and the rooms they put together were terrifying. They were awesome. So, well, you know, throughout most of the haunted house, they were blasting this record, and it seemed to acquire this otherworldly quality, and the songs changed. And I forgot. I forever began to associate Depeche Mode with the most effective music I could find for Halloween. Uh, If you have ever been lucky enough to come to my uh, Halloween party at my house, you know that my wife goes nuts, turns the whole house upside down. We've had a pirate ship, a circus tent, executioner's chamber, Mm -hmm. all in our front room. And the works of Depeche Mode continue to be the primary soundtrack. Uh, This song is right at the top of the list. And here's a piece right here. song was not released as a single, mm. uh, but they still sent the song to alternative radio and it would eventually get to number 28 on Billboard's alternative chart. Um, there seems to be a bit of religious connotation. There's a ton of religious iconography in this, in this song. song as it kind of explores uh, Gore's view on immorality and uh, then is a follow-up guilt for said immorality. Yeah, I, was, uh, I had the note written down that uh, most of the religious iconography immediately alludes to being trapped or imprisoned. Yeah. <laughs> like, huh, what's he trying to say there? Yeah, this, that, this, certainly that Catholic, they're, they're English, so could be Anglican, guilt 
for said immorality, whatever that happens to be, whether it's some sort of sexual deviance or drugs or what have you, you know, it, there's it's a it's a visceral song with yeah. a lot of angel stuff going on, falling angel. Really Anglican. It's just it's just Catholicism, but your no pope. Your pope is named like Steve. Steve Worcester <laughs> for Shire or something. I don't know. I'm sorry if I just offended the entire English Anglican church. I think we've been doing that for a while. Probably. So. Uh, once again, the guy who does the drum programming, Andy, F- Andy Fletcher, is so good at what he does. Yeah. The sounds that he extracts are so awesome. Uh, I know in my head that these sounds are being digitally produced, but they're just interesting enough that I don't care that it's programmed because it's new and fresh and exciting. It sounds cool. And the drums really carry the song, yeah. too. Yeah. They I, really do carry it straight through. I love it. But are you waiting for the night? Such a fragile song. It is. Stands in fairly stark contrast to the rest of the record, which for the most part is up-tempo. It's eerie and cool and is both balanced and restrained. Uh, I keep waiting for it to break loose of its chains, you know? It like has this building quality to it. And it never does. And it want yeah, you want it to explode and it never does anything. So the original name of the song was indeed Waiting for the Night to Fall. Wrong. No? Alan Wilder, in a Q&A session, shot down what? that long-running rumor. Oh. That the song was the t- originally titled Waiting for the Night to Fall, but that a printing error had caused the end to get cut off on the album, so yeah. everybody called it Waiting for the Night. His simple response when asked, for that, que- when asked that question was incorrect. Oh. So. Good now, for you. Again, maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong, maybe he's confused about what the question was, because this was a Q&A session, and people were hitting him with, hitting him with questions left, right, and center. So maybe he was wrong, but I did find that because I I read that rumor as well that it was yeah. called "Waiting for the Night to Fall," and that's been a long held rumor. Hey, I'll that take that was it on the title. I'll take that on the chin. That's fine. I'm wrong. I did uh, I did find that very interesting. It's got a meditative quality to it, uh, and a lot has to do with that keyboard loop that's used through it. Ooh, like yeah. like the, the you've mentioned uh, Francois Kevorkian. He was doing things nowadays aren't that difficult, but yeah. he was doing things back then that were very difficult, effects processing and stuff like that. And he said this about the experience. He said, sometimes we were doing things that weren't quite the norm, such as doing a lot of effect automation by having a computer run alongside the tape and sequencing MIDI commands to control certain effect processors. This is pretty much the sort of stuff people do without giving it much thought nowadays, but 25 years ago, this was fairly esoteric. This gave me a chance to fine-tune and get very precise in the treatment of certain tracks. Rather than having them stick out like a sore sore thumb, I was able to make these effects become what I felt was an integral part of the songs. I can especially remember spending time giving Waiting for the Night an eerie, dreamlike feel. And like you mentioned, he's, you know, he's one of the forefathers of house music. Yeah. He started it as a house DJ in uh, places like Studio 54. He worked with The Smiths, Kraftwerk, Pet Shop Boys, Adam Ant, Diana Ross, you two, that's a pretty wide palette of collaborators. Right. So he knew what he was doing. Diana Ross and you two, basically the same They're type the of music. They're the same type of music. You can hardly, dis- you can't, I can't tell the difference between those I two. I have a lot of trouble telling the difference. Uh, the other part of the song that stands out is the call and response vocals that are utilized. Martin, Martin Gore, who does sing backup on a lot of other songs, gets a co-lead on this one, and it sounds like this right here. Been waiting for the night to Save us all. Now everything's dark, keeps us from the stark reality. 
Moore was asked by the Boston Globe to explain this song. Uh, he said pretty simply, quote, I spend the day waiting for the night. It's a natural, perfect conclusion to the day. Well, there you go, folks. That's it. <laughs> I loved that. I and loved that quote. There you have it. So simple and so wonderful. I spend I spend the day waiting for the night. It's a natural, perfect conclusion to the day. Well, there you go. At that point, I just walk away. What more needs to be said after that? Right. It's a beautiful song. It's very powerful. Uh, there's an interesting cover of this song by black metal band Ghost, Ooh. Uh, which is pr- pretty interesting as well. I do like Ghost. You know, it, they're, they're, they're a, quote, satanic band. Mm. And what's oh, hilarious no. is that the songs are really good. The lyrics just sound so hokey. <laughs> they sound I'm like, is this, a, this is a joke, right? It's a joke. Because the songs are so well crafted, and they're like, "Don't forget death," and I'm like, <laughs> "I'm like, <laughs> oh no, he's serious." Oh, oh no. okay, well, weird. It's a, it's an interesting version of that song. I'll but look that up. I makes not heard me it. makes me want to enjoy the silence, though. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, nice lead-in. This is a classic example of that new wave electronic music sound of the 1980s. I think it might be one of the best examples of that. What? I said that. I said, I don't know if you ever remember me hearing the say, say this, Kyle, but this is one of the finest pop songs mm-hmm. I think ever written. I've I, been saying this for years. I think you brought that up in another episode right? a couple of months ago. It's not the best song ever, not the most beautiful, but top to bottom, from the lyrics to the mixing to the sounds that are used, I think it, it stands out as one of the best pop songs ever recorded. Uh, it was the second single released from the record, would become their highest charting U.S. single to mm-hmm. date. Topping out at number eight on the Billboard chart and number one on the alternative chart. And also won the best British single at the 1991 Brit Awards. Yes. So obviously other people enjoyed it as well. The mixing was done by the producer of the record, Mark Ellis, known as Flood, as you mentioned. And you mentioned his resume earlier. Nine Inch Nails, Pretty Hate Machine. He did Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy, and the Infinite Sadness. Killer's Samstown, 30 Seconds. To Mars, This Is War, which is a great record, even if Jared Leto is a bit of a freak show. <laughs> and an album we talked about earlier this year, Earth by EOB. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the experience really shines on this song. Here's Peace. Originally, when Gore wrote this song, it was a half-tempo ballady sort of song. Uh, when Alan Wilder and Flood reworked the song into an up-tempo number, Gore was not thrilled. Mm. It wasn't until the guitar parts kind of fell into place that he really began to love it. And the song, as you mentioned before, has that favorite bit of the 90s, the hidden track. Yes, it does. Although the hidden track in question does not come at the end of the record, but a full 30 seconds after the song ends and the next one, uh, before the next one begins. Yeah. 
Uh, as you mentioned, it was an interlude called Crucified. Very obscure musical bits. Go ahead. Oh, that's uh, that's exactly oh. what I was about to say, is that uh, the single version of this song is only four minutes and 15 seconds long. The album version is six minutes and 12 seconds because of that interlude. Uh, one of the things about this music, this type of music, electronic music, I mean, is the ability to remix, re-record, and release almost countless versions of a song without too much work. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of work that goes on for the mixers and engineers, like I, like I said earlier, but for the artists, a lot of their work is done. Uh, for this song alone, there are at least 10 different released remixes wow. that they are profiting off of. I'm sure there are countless other versions, but 10 versions that they have approved of and released. And there are also 20 different cover versions of this song that I could find. Uh, my favorite is uh, by Tori Amos, which is excellent. Oh, I've heard that version. Fantastic. That is very good. Ooh, it's so good. Do you have any more about this? I do not. Don't lie about it. I do not. What's your policy of truth? My policy of truth is that Martin Gore has called this one of his all-time favorite songs that they have ever recorded. It's such a great song. It really is. It is a wonderful shoegazer dance song. Yes. Third single off the record. Still currently the only single from the band to chart higher in the States than it did in the mm -hmm. UK, topping out at 15 here, 16 in the in UK. It reached top 20 in nine countries. Nine. Nine times. Peaked at number two on the dance charts, also topped the alternative chart. Their second single in a row. The the hook that pulls you in is one of my favorites. Uh, one of the most unique things about their music, when I start really to think about it, is that they use notes, they use like notes for melody almost exclusively, mm -hmm. as opposed to a lot of pop music, both then and now, which use chords to set the musical melody, and then the vocal melody uses specific notes to tell the story. They're using notes for both melodies, which give it a very rhythmic quality. Some of the rhyming schemes that they use in the song are great, like this part right here. Song's a uh, cautionary tale mm -hmm. along the lines of the immorality that Gore Spork, uh, Spork spoke about earlier. Gore Spork. Uh, basically saying, be careful what you confess to, because once you do, you have to face the consequences. Yeah, once it's out there, you can't take it back. Can't undo the truth once you've confessed. So if the priest is outside the hospital and you're confessing to him via megaphone, yes, you, you only get that uh, one chance. You can't do it more than once. Uh, either way, excellent song. One of my favorites. Uh, unlike Blue Dress. Mm, you don't care for Blue Dress? <sighs> this, is, this is such a creepy song to me. <laughs> and it almost fits in the same category to me as like the Psycho theme song. I don't know what that's that. actually called, but um, uh, it definitely has some real, that same sort of Psycho energy to me. It goes from one of my favorites to perhaps my least favorite. And... Uh, <laughs> 
It's a little pervy for me. It is. In fact, Martin Gore told Music Express in 1990, quote, blue dress, uh, that's the pervy song. <laughs> the idea of watching a girl dress and realizing that this is what makes the world turn. Right? It's your classic voyeur song, huh? Yeah, a little, uh, a little gross there. Uh, Gahan's vibrato reaches into that making me uncomfortable spot again. Like this right here. It's certainly not a bad song. No. Uh, just one of those songs that lie a little flat on what is other- otherwise a stellar album. You what? know, uh, we've talked about a lot of covers. Uh, oh, one, you're, you're going to steal my thought? Go ahead. Wonderful anti-Semite Tila Tequila uh, <laughs> covered you. this in 2010. Thank you very much. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, it's a shame, really, to me, because the music to that version is actually not bad. <laughs> the actual backing music to that is not bad. It's very symphonic and very yeah. uplifting. And then it's got her horrible vocals over the top of it. Anyone's listening um, that doesn't know, Tila Tequila, re- reality star of the aughts. And if you remember her, and if you even if you don't, don't worry. Yeah. You can remember her by and ruin your day all at the same time by listening to a really terrible version of this oh, song. It's horrible. <laughs> and again, I feel bad for it. There was a whole symphony that had to get together and perform this. And they were like, oh, this is going to be a great cover. And then she was like, <laughs> and... Uh, it's just horrible. I'm so glad you found that, too. Oh, that uh, makes me happy. Uh, this song does end with a palate cleanser, though, uh, with interlude number three. Oh, yeah. Which features a string and clarinet duet with vocals under a lot of reverb. Lots of reverb. Uh, sort of, uh, you know, cleans your palate. I see what you did there. Right? Clean. Is the next song. Uh, it's another song on the record that could easily be about being clean and sober, told from a recovering addict's point of view. Or you could take a look at it from a relationship point of view. I think there's valid arguments for both. Mm -hmm. Uh, Musically, the opening bass line is very reminiscent, or perhaps a direct lift, of the bass line from the Pink Floyd song One of These Days Mm. off the 1971 album Metal. Uh, The band has admitted that they were fans of the song and how uh, they had given the bass almost an electronic sound. They uh, they said that they nicked that idea because they loved it. We nicked it. We nicked it. Uh, there's only one line of lyrics in that entire song, one of these days. And the lyric is, one of these days, I'm going to cut you into little pieces. <laughs> I wonder how much of that was intentional by Depeche Mode, because they were big fans of their fellow countrymen. And you get some relationship between the two songs if you look at the lyrics from a couple instead of a recovering addict. I think it's quite interesting. This is what the beginning sounds like. Mm 
Uh, so uh, Gahan also goes uh, super low on this song, which is really cool for pop music when we are typically obsessed with whether or not the singer can hit the highest of the high notes. It's a nice change and a welcome one, actually. You have more on this? Oh, song? I think it's a wonderful closer to this album. Yeah. It's got this nice build to it, and then the end is a very long fade out. Very it's long. almost 30 seconds, uh, but it's, it's it's really nice. It's a very good sort of quiet close to this album i dig it i like it a lot so uh so that's violator that is violator (laughs) definitely one of my favorite electronic records and one of my favorites of that time period in general Uh, i'd like to believe that it still holds up over 30 years later if you would like to tell us what you think about this record or anything else we may have done you can get a hold of us at twitter at audio judo or instagram at audio underscore judo or Facebook at Audio Judo. Indeed. Uh, if you just can't wait and you just have to send us an email right now, you can send it to info at audiojudo.com. We do respond to that, by the way. Yeah, we're, we're pretty we're good very at that. on top of that. If you, uh, if you don't want to talk to us about this record, but have albums of your own you would like to talk about, or perhaps talk about with us, how would they do that, Kyle? Oh, uh, you can actually join our Patreon. Our top tier, I'm going to go backwards this week. Our top tier is called the Backstage Pass. Mm. It is 20 bucks a month, but... For 20 bucks a month, not only do you get a very special personalized gift, uh, you get the chance to co-host an audio judo episode with us on the album of your choice. Uh, that sounds so crazy. Just to let you know, you have to pay for that for one year uh, before we will do that, and you can only activate it once, meaning after the year is up. If you want to stay in that tier, that's great. If you want to keep supporting us for 20 bucks a month, you're more than welcome to, but uh, you're not, you don't get to host another episode. Uh, it also includes all the benefits from the previous tier. Which we've called the front row seats. Mm-hmm. So for only five bucks a month, uh, you can get two day early access to every single episode. Uh, shout out on a future episode as a loyal producer. Bonus mini episodes, which we call judo chops. Those come out every other week in between the regular episodes. They're a lot of fun, uh, and you get occasional bonus content such as uh, unedited interviews, uh, behind the scenes interviews. I'm sorry, behind the scenes videos and tiny tidbits that got cut out of episodes. Mostly due to our own flatulence. Right, just burps and farts. Burps and much. farts. Uh, you can it's also, just a 20-minute cut together of burps and farts burps that Randy and, put together. 20 minutes uh, of burps uh, and farts. Uh, you can also get merch uh, with our logo on it. Perhaps you're looking for the uh, perfect poolside tumbler for your refreshing summer drinks. Oh. Uh, well, uh, get one with our logo on it. It's pretty classy. You can find the link at our, uh, to our store on our website, audiojudo.com. We do actually have... A new patron that we need to give a shout out this week, don't we? Oh, is it? Is it uh, Christian something or other? Christian, yes. I don't remember what his last Shirt name was. Shirtpansky. Shirtpansky, I believe. That's no no relation. No relation to Def- the other one, I guess. Definitely not in any way related to Matthew. Nope. Nope. But uh, thank you, Christian, for supporting the podcast. We really do appreciate it. Yeah. What? Now, uh, I, you know, I mean, basically what's happening is Matthew is funneling money to his child so that he can funnel money back into us. It's a big hedge scheme. Don't worry about it. Nobody needs to know the particulars of how that's working. It's called a triangle trade system, not a pyramid pyramid scheme. scheme. Uh, Don't worry about it. No, but really, we do. It's all semi-legal. I do know that this money is probably coming out of your own pocket, Christian, and we appreciate you. You, in fact, hosted an episode on video game music with us. You did. Uh, One of our more popular episodes of all time. Right. And uh, hopefully... When uh, after he's paid for a year, he'll host another episode about video game music. My video game music part two. Why not? There's a whole bunch. 
Uh, so please don't forget to check out our new podcast, Audio Judah Does Jazz, which yes. is out now. Uh, we have episodes coming up about Metallica, Joy Division, The Who, and an episode about bands that only made one record. So yes. please come back. And until then, uh, bye-bye. Take care, everybody. Now. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.